chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. We're in this series, Take Heart, Learning from God's Word, How to Stay Strong as Wickedness Grows Around Us. And today we open God's inerrant word to consider this subject, How to Become Fervent When Wickedness is Growing. We're going to read verses 9 through 11 for context, but we'll focus primarily on verse 11. So let's read God's word. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Paul said, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Romans was written by Paul from the city of Corinth. It was written a couple of years after Nero became the Roman emperor. Nero, I think, would be accurately called a megalomaniac, which means he was filled with delusions of self-grandeur, obsessed with power, and feelings of omnipotence. I've talked about him in previous sermons. He was very immoral, yet the people of Rome were no different. If they had a baby, a couple had a baby they didn't want, they just set it outside. And it would be kidnapped, attacked by wild animals, or die of dehydration or exposure. You wonder if Nero ran for office, how many of those people would have voted for him? Rome was certainly not an environment where Jesus was honored or even known. Well, we live in an environment today where Jesus is not honored. And every day, the message is that abnormal is normal, normal is abnormal, and after a time, it begins to weigh on us. Growing wickedness around us can diminish our fervency for Jesus. It drains our morale. I feel the weight of this myself. You know, if you're a soldier fighting a battle, you lose courage if you think you can't win the war. If you're an athlete playing a sport, you find it harder to train when you know your team's not very good. Uh, Tara and I like to walk at the track at the high school, and we learned two things about walking there. Number one, with the exception of summer, it's 10 degrees colder there than anywhere else in town. And number two, if the wind is blowing, I mean, this is amazing. If the wind is blowing, it's in your face on the north stretch of the track, and then when you turn around and go south, it's in your face there too. I mean, I'm joking, obviously, but it seems like it. The point is this. It's harder to move forward when the wind is in your face. So growing wickedness can cause our fervency for Jesus to diminish. The word fervency there can be used in the context of being set on fire by the Spirit or set aglow by the Spirit. So the question that comes up is, how do we become fervent for the Lord Jesus Christ? And we might think this, I have a time of lethargy and this will pass. I'll wait until I feel better to take action. But that's never the case. It's been accurately said that you can't feel your way into acting better, but you can act your way into feeling better. Come to Jesus just as you are right now. Come to him because you want to be fervent. Don't come to him filled with false shame and false guilt. Oh, Lord, I haven't been fervent. Come to him with this confession. Lord, I'm not fervent, but I want to be fervent. He won't cast you out. He won't scorn you. Come to him with the certain knowledge that you're a child of God and come to him armed with the truth that Christ gave himself for your sins, 
You have been redeemed. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in your heart, and he loves you as his child. Now, you might say, I am so down that I can't even say that I want to be fervent. Then pray as a Scottish preacher in the 1800s pray. His name was Robert Murray McShane. He didn't even live to age 30, but his writings are, and his sermons are absolutely amazing. And here's a prayer he was famous for. He said, Lord, I am not willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. You know, in the Christian life, there are times that are just spiritually rich. And joy and blessing are so abundant. But there are also times when the lights go out and you have no idea how to turn them back on. Well, this morning, let's find the light switch. Let's learn how to become fervent when wickedness is growing. So number one, the diagnosis. In some ways, only you can determine if you're fervent in your walk with Jesus. So let's ask this question. What does lacking in fervency look like? Well, here are some examples. You're a student. You really want to follow Jesus. You're regular in student ministry and church, and in a couple of weeks, you're going to go to church camp, and you'll come home fired up. But you find it hard to make it last because when you're fervent, your classmates either make fun of you or they exclude you. So just to get by, you settle for a fading or a mediocre walk with Jesus. You're losing fervency. Maybe you're in the business or professional world. One wrong sentence and you might lose everything you've worked for. And today, you, you might be on eggshells. You're not really sure what you can say and what you can't say. And each year, the demands on you are higher. You exceeded the company's goals for you last year by 20%. Great job. Here's a bonus. Since you did so well, we think you can exceed this year's goals by 30%. So get to work. And those circumstances have worn you down. Your goal now is just to get by, and your fervency for Jesus has been diminished. Maybe you're a young or middle-aged father, and you're trying to be a good father and a good husband. But the message from our culture today is that manhood is toxic, that it's patriarchal, and that it's misogynistic, which means you hate women. You aren't really sure how to take charge of a situation or lead your family. Your extended family may think you're a religious extremist or you just sit back and try to follow the lead of your wife because all this friction that has occurred in this world has put you in neutral and you're losing fervency. Maybe you're a young mother. The culture has lied to you in massive ways. I read a short interview this week with a divorce attorney, and the interviewer asked, the interviewer asked if the main thing this attorney sees are problems from second marriages, and he said no. The problem he sees today are households where the mother does everything, makes the money, takes care of the kids, runs the finances, makes all the decisions, and he said she's tired and weary and becoming resentful. The message of the culture is you're supposed to be an incredible mother and wife, athletic, entrepreneurial, clever, and charming. At home, you're somehow supposed to bring order out of chaos. You live with false guilt and false shame over that. And if not that, then you live with false guilt and false shame over body image or the development and behavior of your kids or something. And you're not fervent because you feel like a failure. Maybe you serve 
here at and through West Haven, but you feel like it's a treadmill. You don't see the fruit that you think you should see, but you do see spiritual dropouts, and it's very discouraging, and your morale is diminishing. Or maybe you're up in years, and you find yourself having a hard time not rehearsing the hurts of the past. You're not sure how to get those out of your mind. You're, you're like Paul. He said, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And bitterness and unforgiveness are beginning to wash over you, and you look at the evil around you, and it's draining your fervency. Now, I probably didn't cover your situation, but the diagnosis is a lethargy of soul, and you know it when you've got it. The most obvious symptom is this. You don't care. Nothing moves the needle enough in your life to cause change. Now, that's the diagnosis. But number two, the prognosis. Number one, it's chronic. Jesus told the church at Ephesus, sorry, I'm a little behind there. Whoops, I'm sorry, you're going to have to back that off. Take this away from me. <laughs> the prognosis is this. Number one, it's chronic. Jesus told the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 3, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That means it's happening and it keeps on happening. Yet it's not only chronic, it's becoming acute. Jesus told the church at Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I come to you. He's not talking about some kind of a rapture or second coming there, but rather some form of judgment. And it's not only becoming acute, if it goes uncorrected, it's fatal. Jesus told the church at Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, in other words, not fervent, I will spit you out of my mouth. So the prognosis is terrible. But here's the good news. It can be reversed. And friend, I want to say this to you. It can be reversed despite any wickedness that is around us. In all three of those previous examples, Jesus was communicating to church in cities where there was great wickedness. In Ephesians, during Paul's day, that city was filled with occultic practices. They built a temple to the goddess Diana, also known as Artemis. And when Paul showed up and his teaching threatened the trade business surrounding Artemis, a riot ensued. And Acts 18 says the city was filled with rage, and they began crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the city was filled with confusion. The second example was Sardis. Jesus started that letter like this. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Dead, no fervency. The wickedness there was within. And then the third example brings that out even more, the church at Laodicea. It was a wealthy city. Wealth can kill fervency faster than wickedness usually can. They had a medical school. They had a burgeoning textile industry. They had ophthalmology was discovered. They venerated gods like Zeus and Dionysius. What do they need Jesus for? And while eternal security is 100% biblical, if Jesus is going to spit the lukewarm out of his mouth, that doesn't sound very comforting to me. 
So while a lack of fervency can be chronic, acute, and headed toward fatality, it's time to take action. No matter this situation, you and I, now I want you to know this, let me pause. Everything I say this morning is one finger pointing at you and three back at me. In fact, the truth is two and six. Because I, I, I struggle with this sometimes. No matter the situation, we have to take responsibility for our own situation. We can't play the blame game. We are not helpless. We have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we know truth, and therein lies the key to regaining fervency. It's very simple. Apply the truth, and that takes us to the remedies. The remedies. The way, three ways to apply truth to regain fervency. These are gloriously simple. Friend, number one, refocus on Jesus. Refocus on Jesus. Let's think about him. The only begotten Son of God left heaven. He came to earth emptying himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He was born as a human baby. Lived as fully man and fully God for 33 years, and at the end he was hated, spat upon, reviled, abandoned, whipped, and tortured on a cross. He bore the punishment for your sins. He died, but he rose again. He ascended to heaven, and with spiritually open eyes, we can see right now his greatness and his glory, and here's how. Look around this building at the changed lives of people right here. You and me and people in this church, have we are tangible, visible evidence of his life-changing power. And if you knew me <laughs> before I got saved, you wouldn't have taken me as your pastor even 30 years later. You might say, okay, there are changed lives, but the wickedness around us discourages me so much. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And hate is a pretty strong word. One Bible dictionary said it means active ill will in words and conduct, a persecuting spirit. So as Christ followers, we should expect that what happened to Jesus will happen to us, at least to a certain extent. We need to change our expectations of life. I dare say that all of us have it better than Jesus. He had no place to lay his head. He was a special target of the devil himself, rejected in his hometown. His own family thought he was out of his mind. He was performing miracles, but I guess they think he outkicked his coverage. I'm not sure what made them think that. His friends didn't understand what he was saying. He was betrayed by a person he deeply invested in. In the time of his greatest need, his friends abandoned him. His haters rejoiced in being cruel to him, and we haven't even gotten to the cross yet. So if at any point, we are more blessed in this world than Jesus was. That is a gracious blessing from God. The life Jesus lived, the sufferings he endured, should be the baseline for our expectations in life. As I said a few weeks ago, lower the temperature of your flesh. And as the hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
And if you experience suffering like he did, not the general suffering of life, but suffering for following him, the Bible says you rejoice as you participate in his sufferings. Now, why would you rejoice? Well, there are a number of reasons, and that would be another sermon for another day, but one of the reasons is this. It is a sure sign you are in him. You're his. There's no greater privilege in life than to be his, whatever the cost. In your darkest hour, he's the one that will never leave you. And you look at the evil all around us and you feel like that the blessings of this country, they're over. But remember this, friends, please remember this. This right now, this is hard for me to remember, but this is not your life. This is not my life. Colossians says our life is hidden in Jesus it says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Man, this is just the dress rehearsal. So I want to ask you four questions. And if the answer is yes, I want you to say out loud, I do. These aren't wedding vows. They're just affirmations. Okay, so I want to say it. If you believe it, say I do. Number one. You trust him to wipe out your sins by his blood, right? Okay. Do you believe that when you die, Jesus will bring your soul into his presence immediately? Do you believe that he will raise your body from the dead? Everybody's going to yes instead of I do. That's fine. That's totally fine. I should have done that. Do you believe it will be a perfect resurrection body? Okay, those four questions just comprise a simple confession of faith. What you just confessed is greater than any evil that can overtake you. If Jesus can wipe away your sins, bring your soul into his presence at death, raise your body from the dead, and give you a perfect resurrection body, then, man, he can raise your fervency despite any wickedness that grows around you. So have faith in the one who saved your soul. Rekindle your fervency by focusing on him. And number two, by the way, all three of these are inseparable. But you can't do two and not the third. Refocus on Jesus, number one. This is the harder one. Review your routine. Review your routine. Verse 11, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So God calls us to serve him with fervency. I remember one of my first full-time, when I was first became full-time ministry, a meeting with some church members. And I used the term relaxed excellence. We want to serve Jesus with relaxed excellence, meaning we're not so uptight that we're afraid of making a mistake. But we always want to serve him with our best. And one person basically pushed back on that idea, and then I'll never forget what he said. He said, well, you know, it's just church. It's never just church. It's always God's church. There's an extraordinary awe and wonder we need to have for him and to recognize it's our privilege to serve him, being fervent in spirit. Everything we do 
comes from a love relationship with him. So if you lack fervency, it could be that there's something wrong with that relationship. And more than likely, I'm just going to throw a dart at the dartboard, but I'm guessing this is it. It could be a lack of time spent with him in his word and in prayer. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul said, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Why? Because the days are evil, days of wickedness, just like ours. Wisdom, being wise, has recognized that you and I have a precious but a passing opportunity in these days. Through Paul, there in Ephesians chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is emphasizing the importance of how we spend our time. We can get in a routine that either leaves Jesus out or we simply turn to an app for a 60-second devotion and then we're off for the day. I want to encourage you to rearrange your priorities to spend time with Jesus and fervency will be rekindled. God doesn't owe us any time on this earth, but we owe God all the time he's given us. Imagine that you go to the doctor for a routine checkup and the doctor's office calls you and says, we need to schedule a follow-up appointment for you. And at that appointment, the doc says, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have a rare and fatal disease. It's spreading rapidly and there's no treatment at all. What's your first question? How much time do I have left? Now, much time is taken by the necessities of life. You have to eat, sleep, and go to Walmart. You have to go to work, go to church, and go to Walmart, and take a shower and wash your clothes and go to Walmart. If you're new to West Haven, I'm not a fan of Walmart. And there are also seasons of life where time is devoured by a pressing issue. But friends, if we'll carve out time in his word and his prayer, it won't be long before fervency returns. Why is it so hard to do that? There's an obvious reason. Because the devil doesn't want us to do it. So we'll have every impediment in the world to try to keep us from doing that. And one of the major impediments, I hate to say this, this may sting a bit, but it's true. <laughs> and again, one at you, three at me. If you can't sit in a Bible study or sit through a sermon without checking your phone, consider that a sinful addiction. This is the biggest time waster I've seen in 30 years. And I can't say it enough, for every finger I point at you, there are three back at me. This has changed my attention span. I, I've, I have to put this in the next room and turn the volume off to have a productive time with Jesus. I can be reading a book 10 minutes and then I reach over for my phone. Why? It didn't make, give me a notification. It's trained me to be distracted. So I've got issues here. I want to be just transparent about that. We need to evaluate our routine. May not be this. Does the way you spend your time honor God? Does it help you spiritually? Does it encourage evangelism? Does it bring you peace? Does it help your kids come closer to Jesus? Or is there a frenetic pace of life that may be productive in one area of life and it seems to validate you, but the spiritual cost of that is far greater than anything you gain on earth? The promise of God is that if you draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. So refocus on Jesus, review your routine, and a third way to stir up fervency is this, remember the future. Now, how can you remember the future if it hasn't happened? Friend, the future has already happened. 
We are being saved. We are saved right now from the penalty of sin, and that's called justification. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. We will be saved from a human standpoint from the presence of sin when we die. That's called glorification. But in God's economy, those are decided facts. They've already happened. There's no time-space limitation with God. Your future is, as they say, signed, sealed, and secure. Don't hope for utopia here. Do we try to make this a better place to live? Well, sure, because no one wants to suffer. But we ultimately point people to Jesus because this world will always be wicked. Don't set yourself up for disappointment. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. A little history lesson. The 19th century ended as the age of optimism. New inventions were going to bring the world into this wonderful age. And it's amazing how that affected eschatology, the study of the end times. Many theologians then began to believe in post-millennialism, which is the belief that world, the world gets better and better and better, and then Jesus returns. Well, then came World War I, so much for post-millennialism. There are people that still believe that. I'm not putting that down. Okay, well, World War I is over, but that's okay because World War I was what? The war to, you got it, the end, to end all wars. So now that's behind us, and now things will be better. And then came World War II and the Holocaust. Well, at least now there's peace. And then came the Korean War. Well, Harry Truman said that was a police action, but nevertheless, the Korean War. And then came the Vietnam War. And over in China, there's Chairman Mao and his struggle sessions in the 60s. He killed 80 million people. And Pol Pot emptied Phnom Penh, a city of 2 million people, and drove them out of the wilderness. He killed many of them. In four years, he killed 3 million people. And then in the 80s, we had the Cold War and the Oklahoma City bombing, and then came 9-11 and the War on Terror, and now we're fighting a technological war. This world is full of wars and conflict. In the midst of all that, we don't stop and look at the bad news and just stay frozen. We make plans, we have ambition, we get to work, but the Bible says we are a mist that appears and then vanishes. Our life is uncertain. Tomorrow may, may bring a mix of pleasure, pain, or both. Paul is writing to Christians in Rome, and about six years after he wrote this, their world is going to become unraveled as Nero unleashes persecution after Rome burns. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. What's certain in life? The blessed hope, the appearing in glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a decided fact. And as we wait, the Bible says he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for a people for his own possessions who, listen to this, who are zealous for good works. So in this verse, it says, we serve the Lord, the king of the universe. He's already won the victory. Earlier I said it's hard to be a soldier if you think your side can't win. He won. The battle is over. Death has been defeated. Evil does not win. Evil's having its day, but evil will be over, and there will be a new earth. We'll be on it with a resurrected body that is perfect, it will be filled with every tribe, tongue, and nation, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Remember the future this morning. And maybe you're not sure what the future is for you. 
then we want to talk to you about being saved so that you can know you have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Complete that card in front of you and put it in a basket in the back or talk to Nathan or myself, Kirk's downstairs in the nursery, or talk to someone near you because we want you to be sure that you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.